why don't we start with the word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to open your word and come together in this way. Bless us with an understanding and a knowledge of your presence through the opening of your word and gathering together and the knowledge and the promise of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I'll just take it. It's all good. Thanks. There we go. Beautiful. So that, that video comes from Bible Project. Um, if you're interested, they've got a wonderful resource on YouTube, and you can go in there and have a look and find out more about what they've got. In our church, we're going through the journey of Easter. We're heading towards that place of connecting with the reality of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and Savior. And you might be thinking to yourselves, you know, how many sermons can you preach about Easter? <laughs> I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. There's, there's only so much you can talk about. But friends, what I've discovered and what I'm sure many of you who are pastors and have been pastors are aware of is that we can talk about Jesus' resurrection and the promise of Jesus' resurrection for a long, long, long time. And why is that? Because there is something good in it. There is something amazing in it. There is a promise in it. And here's the kicker. This promise is not something we take lightly. It's not something we should forget. It is something we should hold on to. The reality of Christ's resurrection and death. And I said it in that, directly in that way for a reason. Because we often emphasize the resurrection, don't we? We do. Some of our other Christian brothers and sisters in different traditions emphasize the death. We tend to emphasize the resurrection. But what I'm telling you right now is I want to emphasize the narrative, the overall story that gets us to the cross, that gets us to the tomb, that gets us to that wonderful moment of redemption and atonement. As many of you are aware, I consider myself a student of Aussie culture and the English language. I've read the Angalash Bible. You know what Angalash is? It's English with all of the Latin words removed. It was a slog, I'll tell you what. It was hard work. It was only the Germanic root words of it. And as, as someone who studied uh, Luther's works and theological German, it took me right back to that. Because it showed me how much the roots of English are embedded in that melting pot of European spirituality and connection around the 1600s that gave rise to a lot of the worship we enjoy today. To a lot of the theology that we take for granted. That gave answers to questions which we did not know were being asked, but are so, so relevant. And I'm sharing with you this today because I want to highlight for you this word atonement. Atonement. It's a wonderful word, unique to the English language. It doesn't come from German. It doesn't come from Latin. It's actually a portmanteau of at one meant. At one meant. Why? 
What an interesting term. Why, why did they come up with this? Because they needed a way for people, people like you and me, to comprehend that all of this language of justification, of sanctification, of coming together with God, needed to be simplified. It needed to be connected with a simple relational term that we could all understand. We needed to understand that Christ's death and resurrection meant that we could be at one with God. And that's what atonement means. So even with all of the, the high theological language that we can put to this, and believe me, it is meritorious to do so. There is a simple, fundamental and beautiful truth that we need to capture in our journey of Lent heading towards Easter. And that, my friends, is what I want to share with you today. Picking up on our video. My clicker is working. Picking up on our video, we come to this passage from our Bible reading. It says he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows or a man of suffering acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and he looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. I love that image in the video where Jesus is there and he comes before the, the injured man as a servant king. But then suddenly he is in shackles and then suddenly he dies. As a person who discovered his own faith late in life, although he had been raised in the church. That moment was meaningful for me because that's what it felt like. I remember distinctly praying at the foot of my mother's bed, down on my knees, and feeling for the first time connected with Jesus Christ, connected with my Jesus Christ, not the Jesus Christ that my father had preached about since I was a little boy, not the Jesus Christ that I, I've read about or heard about in Bible school and, and that I, I understood from, from Sunday school teachers and elders and wonderful men and women who had instructed me in my life. Not their Christ, my Christ. And you know what happened within seconds? Within seconds I realized that that Christ had also died for me. So not only had I connected with the reality of this man who had loved me before I had known it, but then I connected and was struck with the reality that he had actually given his life and that in giving his life, he had set me free. And all of the stuff that I'd learned and that I'd heard since I was a little boy came flooding back to me. And I, I, I wept. I, I was emotionally overdrawn. Because in that moment, everything that I had heard had been fulfilled. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about the fulfillment of what God had been doing all the way since creation. Because the promise of Jesus, this promise we read in Isaiah, the promise we see fulfilled in the Gospels, is a promise all the way from creation. And my prayer and hope is that today you go home with an awareness of that. Why is this so important? I want you to ask that question throughout the sermon, my friends. Because we can live our whole lives without knowing this reality, without knowing that God's promise came all the way from the beginning of creation. We can understand it inherently in our hearts, can't we? 
We can understand that this love that we do not know came from somewhere, but wow, it's amazing and it's life-changing and it's transformational. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. When you go to talk to your family and to your friends about that transformational love, it's sometimes hard. It's sometimes hard to be able to say and have the right words to describe how that has impacted you and that journey that you've had. Because they haven't done it with you. When I wept and I doubled over at my mother's bed, and you know my mother, you've met my mother, she's a minister, she loves the Lord, she's poured her life out for Jesus. Her first words to me was, what's wrong? She did not understand that in my heart I was breaking before the Christ who died for my sins. But she said, what is wrong? Maybe it was her fatigue. It was about two in the morning. We'd be praying for four hours. Maybe it was the fatigue. Maybe it was the fact that she was thinking about going to sleep and getting on with her day. I don't know what it was. But in that moment, just, just, just like Ananias, when Paul came to him, the one who knew Jesus, Ask the very humane, human question. And it was loving and it was cherishing, but it disregarded the simple reality of the miraculous that was happening right in front of them. So that's why I'm telling you this, friends, because it is so important as we share the reality of what God is doing in our lives that we are equipped with some of these stories, some of these narratives, especially as we consider the narrative that comes together. Jesus himself said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Before you start getting squirmy and worried, I want to tell you something. You are great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay? You are. You are. And I'm not just saying that because you're sitting here in church or listening online. I'm not. You are great. Because Jesus loved you before the beginning of time. Do you understand that? Do you, do you hear me, church? Jesus is saying here that all those who connected with his reality and his love when he taught and he said the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself that makes you great in the kingdom of heaven is it any wonder that when a soul calls out to Jesus all of the armies and choirs of heaven sing with one voice because it is a great moment of fulfillment of the promise that God had made becoming fully realized this is what Jesus is saying I did not come to get rid of all of that stuff that happened in the Old Testament. The first two-thirds of your Bible, yes, it's about two-thirds, it's not half. The first two-thirds, if something is two-thirds full, it's pretty rich, isn't it? The first two-fourths of your Bible matter. That's what he's saying. But don't worry. Don't worry. Because what was there, and what was sown in law and legalism, legalism is fulfilled. In love. And what does that mean? He uses this beautiful word, pliro, pliro, right? We get this word in English, plethora or plethora. Have you heard this word before? Plethora, plethora? It means plenty, lots, lots of, doesn't it? Yeah. But in the original language, what it actually means is that something is 
filled. It's filled. It is up to the brim and you cannot put any more in. I want you to capture that idea. Because Jesus here is saying, the law is filled. It's up to the brim. We can't put anything else in. There are no more requirements that Christ can ask, that God can ask. Why? Because that jar is full. And in that fulfilling of the jar, we are atoned. What does that mean? What does that mean? I told you the first half of your Bible was important. Let's go to Genesis 1. And don't worry, we're not going to go through every single book of the Bible. <laughs> Feels ready for a day-long sermon. <laughs> In Genesis 1, God blessed the waters and said, Be fruitful and multiply. And what? Fill the waters. Have you ever been to the beach and seen the fish frolicking? Seeing the animals that, do you know they say that there is more life in one drop of water than there is out in the fields of the earth? Isn't that amazing? Obviously, I'm not talking about fishes and birds and whatnot, I'm talking about bacterial life. But here, that is a fulfillment of what God said be fruitful, multiply, and fill the seas. Then He blesses mankind and He says to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. And what? Fill the earth and some. Take stewardship over it. Have that as your inheritance when you fill the earth. Now he's not talking, Jesus, God was not talking about having people everywhere and you can't move. He was talking about fulfilling our purpose as stewards of God's perfect creation that he had planted, that he had given. Because while God's creation was perfect, it was unfulfilled. It was yet to be filled by what? You and me. And that's still happening. That's still happening because there are churches that are empty. That's still happening because there is pain in the world. That's still happening because there are people whose hearts are breaking before the presence of God and they lack their sisters and brothers to be there and hold them up and say, Jesus loves you. We're still filling the earth, friends. The earth is yet to be filled. And personally, I don't believe we'll see the second coming until that happens because you know what? He said it's got to be filled. Filled to capacity. That jar's got to be to the point where you can't get anything else in. We have another instance of this. God blessed Noah and his son. And he said to them, be fruitful, increase in number. And what? Noah was saved in a wooden vessel. Does that sound familiar? For those of you online, I'm pointing at a big cross behind me. Noah was saved in a wooden vessel. And when he came out, he was told to fill the earth because it wasn't going to be just Noah and his kids who were saved. It was going to be all of humanity. You see, this is a promise that God had yet to fully realize and he was doing it through Noah. Genesis 1.28. We did that already. I was, I was going to go to this one. I was going to go to this one because I love this one. getting emotional. 
I told Cameron I wouldn't do this. Normally I look at her. Anyway. Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar. He set up the tent of the Lord. He lovingly labored with the children of Israel. The tent of the Lord was called the presence of God. That is what the original language calls it. And when everything was done, Moses prayed. I want you to hear this. When everything was done, when the work, when the labor had been made, the furnishings of gold, the tents had been woven, the cloths had been prepared, everything had been sanctified, they put it all aside. They did it with a promise. The promise was that God would fill that space. And what happened? Then the cloud covered us into meeting and the glory of the Lord did what? It filled the tabernacle. It filled the tabernacle. In Kings, we hear that the glory of the Lord comes into the temple. Solomon is praying. The Israelites are worshipping the Lord and the glory of the Lord comes and they all fall face down on their on their on the floor because they are struck as if by a wind because the presence of God is tangible. Can you feel it right now, church? Do you understand it? This is what God does. This is how He fulfills His promises. He comes along and He fills that space. What I love about this passage and the reason I was getting emotional is because it comes immediately, immediately after the Israelites incident with the golden calf. See, our God could have come along. He says to Moses, you know what? Forget those guys. Stuff them. I'm going to start again with you, Moses. You and your wife, and we'll go. You're faithful. They, they didn't follow him. And Moses says, no, Lord, they are your children. And God says, you know what? You're right. I love them. I will forgive them. And then he comes along and fills the tabernacle. He decides as a parent, his presence is no longer going to be away from them up on the mountain where Moses is to climb up. 80-year-old Moses. We got any octogenarians in the house? No? Oh, yes. Yeah. Can you imagine climbing a mountain? <laughs> she said, you're kidding. <laughs> what about lovely Anne? Could you imagine climbing a mountain? No. <laughs> Moses was slightly younger than you when he climbed up that mountain. Every time he needed to talk to God. You read those passages, don't you? In the Hebrew, they actually put in this sound. It's Baha, Baha, Baha. That's Moses breathing. <laughs> Because he gets out of breath going to talk to God. I love it. I was asking my, my Hebrew, Hebrew lecturer, why, why do we have this weird particle? You know? And, and he's like, oh, that's, that's the sound of him. And then, <laughs> I love it. It's great. Jesus actually said in, in the previous passage, uh, not, not a, a single mark, not a letter will be removed from Scripture, including... Moses is breathing marks so that we all know that he was tuckered out from going up the mountain to speak with God. Isn't, isn't the word great? Isn't God great? Friends, God loved his people so much that in his forgiving them, he decided that he needed his 
presence to be closer to them. It should have been the other way around. It should have been when they committed the sin, when they literally rejected him by making an idol. That he went, you know what? Now I'm gone. Forget you, jokers. But he didn't. He said, okay, I get it. I'll just come closer. And in coming closer, he didn't stop. He went with them to Israel. He went with Daniel and his friends into exile. He came back with Hezekiah, and Hezekiah dug in the ruins. What, what is this building? What, what? It's got a steeple. What, what is this building? Finds the Bible in the ruins. They never had the Bible before. They didn't understand it. They didn't know what it was. But all of a sudden, all of Israel cries in anguish because they discovered the word of the Lord and they are moved by the presence of God and their hearts are filled. We say God loves sinners, but I don't think we fully understand what that means. It means that in those moments where we need Him most, He is willing, despite our sin, to come close. That is the fulfillment of His promises. This word that he uses is male. Male is such an important word in other parts of Scripture because it talks about the reality of that which was emptied now being whole. Whole. Complete. You see, when we talk about fulfillment, fulfillment of Scripture, fulfillment of prophecy, fulfillment of promise. We're talking about the reality that we have a God-shaped home inside us. We're born with it. And that incompleteness is what God desires to fill in each of our hearts, in our lives. He wants to be there in us as individuals, but also we've got a God-shaped home in our society in our families, in our community. That is why we desire to connect with the true and authentic understanding of who God is and why we are drawn to it, why we, why we hold on and we listen. Friends, I'm mentoring a number of people who will say to me, you know, I, I love hearing what you're saying, Pastor, but I, I want to listen to that podcast or I want to watch these YouTube videos or I want to go and visit that church. You know what I say? Go for it. Because I don't have God stuck in my jar. Wherever you've got to find for that God-shaped hole in your life to be filled, let God work in that space. Let God minister to you in that space. This is why Christ came. Because sinners meant that the God who loves them could not come that close but through the atoning sacrifice of the cross, He could break the rules that He set up, perform a miracle, and then infill their lives. Paul describes it in this, these terms. He says, For as many as are the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law and do them. That's us. That's every human being. But, he says, 
Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The law itself says that Christ is steeped, covered, wrapped in that sin. But it is not by his own doing. So therefore he becomes that perfect and unblemished sacrifice for us, for those of us who have done that. And for anyone who knows the love of God, we can understand that in doing this, Christ fulfills the promise of God to love us, to not let us go, a promise that echoes from before time began. Yet, there's a lot you can say about Easter. Sometimes you can say very clear and obvious things. Sometimes you can look back and find things, truths that were hidden even to the most seasoned counsel. God is a God of revelation and fulfillment. And He wants to fulfill His love in your life today. So with that, I invite you to bow your hands with me as we conclude our time today. Father, we may be finishing this time together, but Lord, I know that when we go from this place, we do not go alone. You go with us. I pray, Lord God, that we feel that God shed call in each of us, that desire to connect with the divine, to know and understand you and your love better. Help us know and understand beyond religion, beyond doctrine, beyond human philosophy, that your love is precious and something worth holding on to. Speak to us, lead us, and unfold us in your love, I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand and sing the truth of the passage that we've just